0: Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this chance we have to be here as your children. Lord, we are coming to you from many backgrounds, from many different walks of life, and yet our common bond is that you sent your son to die for us, to save us. It's hard to comprehend that we are your children because we don't deserve it and we know that. But Lord, help us today celebrate that we are your children. As we have the opportunity to open your word this morning, I pray that you give me the ability to teach a challenging section of Scripture with clarity so that it illuminates the Scripture and doesn't distort the meaning of the text. I pray that you give each one of us ears to hear so that we could apply these truths to our lives. And Lord, we are going to be celebrating the Lord's Table communion this morning. Pray even now that you would help us to examine our hearts To make sure that there's no unconfessed sin so that when we come to your table, we can do what you've called us to do, which is to remember. To remember that you died for us. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of a concluding portion of Scripture. If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 13. Last week we finished up with verse 9 and we're really in the process of putting practical application to truths, deep theological truths that were taught from the beginning. I'm not going to reread it, although I've read it for several Sundays in a row, but we're really trying to do what's stated at the beginning of chapter 12. We're laying aside entanglements we're laying aside sin we're putting all those things away and we're fixing our eyes on jesus because we are in a a race it's a marathon not a sprint and the goal is not for any one of us to win but for all of us to get to the finish line that's what we're called to do and so as part of the reality of the theology that has been taught throughout the book of hebrews it's supposed to result in a certain type of conduct One of the things that would be tragic in your attendance here at Lakeside is if week after week you exposed yourselves to deep truth and it never impacted how you live. That would be pointless. That's not the reason why we gather in church. We gather to learn truth so that we can apply it into our lives and be more like Christ, not just in how we think, although that's critical, but also in the outworking of our thinking in our daily lives. And the whole focus of this book is to keep our emphasis on Jesus Christ. He's everything. And this morning, we're going to be looking at an exhortation, which is always the case, that's directed at our hearts. But I have to tell you, when I first read this section, my first thought to you, it's a deep theological thought, so pay attention. My first thought to you was, what? Huh? What in the world does this mean? Those are humbling but good occurrences. They remind me of how much I still have to learn after 20 plus years of studying the Word of God. And they cause me to dig deeper into God's Word for clarity. They cause me to think through the full scope of a book to take it in its context so that I can bring an understanding of what's going on. And it also reminds me that I have to repeat to myself a truth that sometimes doesn't seem obvious. I know from Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And that includes the confusing parts, the parts that don't jump off the page as understandable. But after studying this and thinking through the book of Hebrews, I think I understand the overarching gist of what is being taught here, and I want to communicate that to you In a way that I hope will help bridge the gap between what they would have heard when they first received the letter and what we hear all these centuries later in our context. And bridging this gap between what the original hearers would have understood and what we understand requires me to give a brief review of something that I've said over and over. been teaching out of Hebrews since I think 2008. So I've said this a lot of times in different contexts but... This book was written to people of a Jewish background. They had come out of Judaism and they had come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they publicly identified themselves with Jesus Christ. But for some of them they were getting lost in the tug of war between what they knew or at least affirmed to be true about Jesus Christ. And the reality of the ongoing practice of Judaism that involved their daily lives believe when this book was written, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. It hadn't been destroyed yet. And so central to Jewish life was Jerusalem and the temple. Everything around, revolved around that if you were Jewish. And to walk away from the rituals and the sacrifices was to distance yourself from your friends and from your family. There was a price to be paid for walking away from Judaism. And some were questioning, was the price worth it? The whole focus of the book is, yes, it's worth it in fact you're not really paying a price because there is no other hope of salvation apart from Jesus Christ it's not going to be the blood of bulls and goats the blood of animals isn't going to cleanse you from sin it's only the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that can do that if you go back to Judaism if you walk away from Christ you never had him and you are lost and if you try and add anything to the work of Christ it's foolishness it's not Jesus plus the Old Testament rituals it's Jesus and him alone The writer emphasized this over and over again. I will ask you to turn just briefly. I'm going to read a section from Hebrews 10. I could have picked several places, but Hebrews 10. I'll start at verse 4. I'm just going to read verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That should, for anyone, stop them in their tracks and say, should we really keep going through these sacrifices? But the writer wants to make clear there is a sacrifice that matters. Go down to verse 10 of Hebrews 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's the ultimate contrast. The daily, never-ending stream of animals that were killed according to the Old Testament law, and for all the blood that was spilt in that regard, it ultimately couldn't cleanse anyone from sin. But Jesus, with his one death took care of sin forever and the writer has laid countless truths upon them through this and he recognizes truth is the central part of everything in fact the precursor to what we're studying today is verse 9 which i covered in detail last week of hebrews 13 do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings the writers stated all this truth, but he knows there's still a danger for people's ears to get distracted by something that sounds good, but it's a lie. I discussed this last week in detail. I can't go back through it, but truth is the antidote for error. You want to avoid being deceived? Bury yourself in the truth. Immerse yourself in the truth. Part of the job I have as one of the elders at Lakeside is to help shepherd and protect the flock that God has assembled here. I spend most of my time studying truth. I don't go around looking for every heretic, every error, every everything. As long as I know the word of God, I'll spot the other. So in our context, our verses today, as confusing as they may first appear, are really a restatement of truths that have already been taught. And it's ultimately going towards the line of don't be carried away by false teaching. It's almost as though he's saying, I don't want you carried away by false teaching. Let me remind you of some true teaching. Again, the words don't jump out that way. But I think and I pray that after I've explained it, after I've taught it, you'll at least see what I think is occurring in the text. Now, this was not something easy to outline. I normally teach from an outline because it's just a tool that helps me teach more clearly. It helps me organize my thoughts. And this morning I came up with a three-part outline that I think flows from the text. And it's just three realities that flow from our faith in Jesus. Three realities that flow from our faith in Jesus. And let me be clear, the goal is not for me to store up more knowledge for you. It's for you to be able to discern truth from error and for you to be able to apply these things in your daily walk with the Lord. And so the first reality is this. Jesus provides all that we need for worship. I don't normally do this. I'm reading you all three points First, second. Jesus' sacrifice provides complete cleansing. And third, our ultimate hope is in heaven, not on earth. Now, I'll go back through those if you take notes. Let me start by reading this entire section. So just follow along with me. I read from the New American Standard Version. I'm going to start reading at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. So let's try and make sense of this unusual language in a way that we can apply it to our lives. So, starting in, the first reality that flows from our faith in Christ is this. Jesus provides all we need for worship. Jesus provides all we need for worship. It's interesting because we see this odd statement in verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now right away, we're confronted with an unusual statement. So much so I meant to bring my notes in. If you could see how I study a text, I I should bring it in some week to see it. I go through a blank page that I print out on a computer and I just write myself notes. I had notes all over this because I didn't know what was going on. And it starts out with that first sentence, we have an altar. We have an altar. We do? Where? I don't see one. Now we call some things altars, and I want to clarify that. In some churches, they do altar calls. And they talk about an altar call, and they want people to come forward to the front. Sometimes churches will have a prayer time and they'll say, come and leave your burdens at the altar. And they're pointing to something in a church. But that's not really an altar in the context of Hebrews 13. In fact, all that is really figurative language in comparison to what is being talked about specifically in Hebrews 13. And we have to go back to that Jewish context. In a Jewish mindset, an altar was a specific piece, we might call it a furniture, but it has a specific function. It's where sacrifices were made. Now, I've only been at Lakeside going on nine years, but I'm going to guess that nobody's ever sacrificed animals up there. I'm going to speculate. At this time, if you said an altar, people thought of blood sacrifices. This is where you take blood. I'm going to read a section. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a section to remind you of what would have gone through a Jewish mind when they read, we have an altar. In Leviticus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, there's just a description. They're all throughout the Old Testament. I could have gone many places. I just happened to go there. And it says this, he shall slay the young bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the bird offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head, and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. An altar was an active thing. It wasn't a figurative picture of something up at the front of a church, it was a place where actual sacrifice occurred. This is the imagery that would have gone through a Jewish person's mind when they heard the word altar And that's clear that it still had that connotation just looking at the book of Hebrews. Again, you don't necessarily have to turn there, but in Hebrews 9. I could have gone to multiple places. Hebrews 9, verses 3 and 4, it says, and it's describing the temple. It's describing the Day of Atonement. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the Covenant. The idea of altar is tied up with the temple, with sacrifice. So to say that we have an altar would normally convey the idea to the original recipients of something where sacrifice was happening. And so to understand verse 10, we have to recognize that's the imagery of the language where it said we have an altar. And this imagery is pointing to a reality of a figurative type. So where's our altar? We have an altar. This is truth. Where is it? I can tell you it's not there. That table for the communion is not an altar. That's not what's being talked about. In fact, the altar that's being talked about here has nothing to do with a church building. But it does have to do with sacrifice. The altar being talked about here is the same type of altar, which is the place that a sacrifice was made. And it all ties into the one sacrifice that really matters. I read this already, but in Hebrews ten, eleven, it says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offer time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So it's that sacrifice for sins, that one time sacrifice that is the Focal point for us saying we have an altar, for the Holy Spirit telling us we have an altar. Where was that sacrifice? It was on the cross at Calvary. When Jesus stretched out his arms and willingly died in our place. I believe that's the imagery being stated here. When it says we have an altar, he's just saying, Look, we have a place for our worship. We don't physically walk back to where Jesus literally died, although some people come close with a trip to Israel. If you've never left Pinellas County, you still have an altar. In fact, we're reminded of that today with communion. What's the point of communion? To remember. To remember that Christ shed his blood for us. It was on the altar at Calvary, so to speak, that the spotless lamb spilled his blood. And this altar is exclusive. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have no place at this altar. Look again at verse 10. We have an altar, but then there's something about it. From which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. When he says has no right to eat, he's not talking about a literal meal. He's just saying they can't participate in this. They're not a part of this. They're not included. And when he says from which those who serve the tabernacle, what he's really pointing to is the entirety of the Old Testament way of worship. He's not just pointing to Levites and saying they actually serve in the temple, so they're excluded. No, he's saying anybody that is putting their hope in the Jewish Old Testament sacrifices can't really participate at Calvary because it's Jesus and him alone. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's not the Old Testament ways of doing things. It's Jesus. That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. You don't need temple worship. You don't need blood of bulls and goats. You don't need all these other things. If you have Jesus, that's all you need to worship God. You have an altar. You have a place to go to focus your heart and energy Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Now it was a little bit easier for the application to be made to the original hearers. Because they could physically walk over to the temple. They could purchase animals for sacrifices. They could go through those rituals. They could watch their family and friends doing that very thing. But for us it's very easy to add other things to Jesus. If you look around at the history of the so called church what you see is there are countless various groups that have ritual after ritual after ritual that are supposed to get you close to God. If you've come out of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church is full of those things. You've got rosaries, you've got priests, you've got what they call altars, you've got all kinds of things. would go that way in an orthodox setting. It's interesting if you follow modern Christianity and the trends... There's been some people from so-called evangelical backgrounds. I say so-called because I don't know that they're truly evangelical. But they're attracted to the orthodox stuff because they want the rituals. They want the candles. They want the smoke. They want the incense. Can I tell you, you don't need any of that? I praise the Lord that we have music here and we get to worship. I thank the Lord for the comforts he's provided us, but we don't even need any of this. If this burned down tomorrow, this church doesn't cease to exist. We have Jesus, that's all we need to worship. Because he died on the altar at Calvary, and that's our present possession. So that's the first reality that flows from our faith in Jesus. The second is closely aligned with the first, it's this. Jesus' sacrifice provides complete cleansing. Jesus' sacrifice provides complete cleansing. And again, we're going to look at some unusual language. I'm going to read verses 11 to 13. But as I break this down, I think we'll be able to see what this is going to teach us. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Again, this imagery can lose us quickly. It lost me. So I want to try and help us stay focused on the big picture. But to do this, I do need to give a little bit of background. It's not a side road at all. It's central to understanding what's going on here. This imagery flows from what is referred to as the Day of Atonement. Prior to this, in my teaching in Hebrews, I've covered the Day of Atonement in more extensive detail because it was central to the Jewish way of worship. And the imagery found in Hebrews 13 verses 11 to 13 is tied up in the Day of Atonement. And recognize if you were a Jewish person living at the time of the book of Hebrews, the Day of Atonement was something you would still understand. In fact, the year was based around that. The original references to the Day of Atonement are God setting it out in the Old Testament. For example, you could look in Leviticus 23 verses 27 and 28 and it says, On exactly the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you and you shall humble your souls and present an offering by fire to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this day for it is the day of atonement to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. Everything stopped on the day of atonement. It was critical. And the book of Hebrews is already based parts of its theological argument on the understanding of the Day of Atonement. For example, again, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, there's a reference to the Day of Atonement. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. This is talking about the fact that it was only one time of the year when people had access to the holiest place where God's presence dwelt. And it wasn't the whole people, it was one man, the high priest. And he could only go in there following certain strict rules or else he would drop dead. If you were really interested, you could read Leviticus chapter 16. It would tell you a little bit more about what goes on on that day based on what Aaron was commanded to do originally. But there were a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament system that were ultimately eaten. There were specific rules and then there were certain sacrifices that after they were offered, they were provided to the priest to eat. That wasn't the case on the Day of Atonement. The key sacrifices on the Day of Atonement were not eaten. His blood was used, but the rest of the animal was taken outside the camp, outside the tabernacle area. Originally in the wilderness the tabernacle of course was a mobile tent that could be set up and taken down by the time of the writing of this letter the temple was standing in Jerusalem but the fact remained that while the blood was used the animal itself was outside that's what the imagery of verse 11 for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp this is just reminding them of a historical reality of this is what happens with the sacrifice Animals were sacrificed, their bodies taken outside of the camp, the city, the setting. A picture, imperfect as it was, of an attempt to take away sin, that was sort of what the Day of Atonement was. It was the chance to plead for God's favor for the next year, for all that had occurred in the prior year. So this writer is pointing to that Old Testament reality, that picture... But that picture was pointing forward to what would be the reality of a true sacrifice in Christ. That's where verse 12 picks up. It's borrowing imagery that they would already understand. This is how it used to be. This is how it is. Therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. Really he's just offering up a picture for the people to use to process to understand what occurred. He's sort of bridging the gap of tying in the day of atonement pictured something. Jesus is that something in the ultimate sense. Jesus was the reality. Jesus is far better. Whereas animal sacrifices were not capable of dealing with sin, Jesus completed the picture. And it's true, Jesus literally was sacrificed outside the city. Wasn't in the temple in Jerusalem. And that really is all tied up The key of this is that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. He made people holy. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see what you see. When I shave in the morning, I'm reminded of what a sinner I am. Thoughts go through my head. I think of things I've done. Particularly when we're having communion, I try and think ahead to make sure my heart's right. But recognize this, when God looks at us, he sees us spotless. I still can't comprehend that. I've been a believer since 1993. That still blows my mind that when Jesus looks at me, he sees me cleansed. Because I don't feel cleansed sometimes. And I know the struggle I still have fighting through the mud of this life in my own heart. And yet Jesus sanctified the people through his own blood. I don't plan these things. I'm thrilled that we're having communion today. Because this teaching reminds us exactly of what we're remembering. Jesus died on the cross to make his children holy. Perfect. Because our sins were placed on Jesus completely at the altar of Calvary. So while the language and how it's phrased doesn't jump out to us as necessarily being easy to understand because we're not primarily from a Jewish background used to temple worship, the imagery presented to its original hearers would jump right into their minds. The takeaway is understandable. Jesus' sacrifice sanctified his children. And what the writer is doing is making it clear there's a complete break with Judaism. He's done this over and over throughout this book, and this is just reiterating this truth. Verse 13, So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. You could almost picture, even though I've not been to Jerusalem, I sometimes try and transport myself back to what the city might have looked like at the time of Jesus with this beautiful temple that was the centerpiece of everything, and what the writer of Hebrews is saying come away from that. That's not it. As attractive as that may be, as many family ties as you may have to that place, that's not where our future is. You go out to Jesus. You bear his reproach. They abused him, they'll abuse you. That's okay. John fifteen twenty: a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. And these people had already as set out in Hebrews chapter 10, they'd already endured hardship. And the writer's saying endure more. If you're not willing to hold fast when times are difficult, the pictures presented in various places in scriptures makes it clear that that's not genuine faith. Now, granted anybody could have a Peter moment, but Peter didn't stay in denial. He repented of it. He was heartbroken that he betrayed the Lord. Some of us have shrunk back when we should have said something and we kind of, and then we regretted it. But there are some people that could come to Lakeside and say, I'm on the team, yay Jesus, and then walk away and we never see him again. Matthew 13, verses 20 to 21, describes and explains the parable of the soils. If you remember those parables, it says, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places... This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. I can't tell you how many times I think about that. Because I lived for years as an unbeliever in that state. I heard something one time and I said, hey, that's for me. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word immediately he falls away. <laughs> that's not what we're supposed to be. So as the writer is saying, you come outside the camp, meaning come away from all those man-made systems. Come away from anything fixated on man-made ideas. Come to Jesus and stay there. And if it costs you something, just bear the reproach. We're not supposed to shrink back. We're not supposed to turn away. In fact, Hebrews 11, which is part of the great hall of faith, holds up for us Moses as an example of what we should be. Verses 24 to 27 of Hebrews 11 says this, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. That's our model. Whatever comes to us, we have complete cleansing in Jesus' sacrifice. We don't need anything else. We don't walk away from that. And that will enable us to endure anything. So, the first reality flowing from our faith is that Jesus provides all that we need for worship. Second, Jesus' sacrifice provides complete cleansing. And third, our ultimate hope is in heaven, not on earth. Our ultimate hope is in heaven, not on earth. All of the foregoing truth causes the writer to remind the hearers of things he's already said to them. Principles that he's already taught. Verse 14 is relatively simple. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And again... You think about the impact of the city of Jerusalem on the mind of a Jewish hearer at that time. Jerusalem was everything. God always will have a place for the Jewish people in his heart. We believe that strongly. But as a nation, the impacts of 70 AD, when the Romans wiped out Jerusalem and they wiped out the temple, still reverberate but that hadn't happened yet when this was written but the writer was just telling them you're not clinging to any city on earth i don't believe this was prophetic of what was about to happen there are other prophecies about that i just think the writer was reminding them that look your hope your home is ultimately not here The entirety of the book is pointing to Jesus. And over and over again, it talks about the fact that Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And this is just a reminder in verse 14 that that's where our hope lies. And it's a reminder that can apply to any people at any time, including us today. Human cities, even the greatest of them, come and go. I think if I was a billionaire... One of the things I'd want to do is go around and visit historical sites around the world. The few times I've had the opportunity to do it, they're fascinating to me. But part of what is fascinating about it is no matter how great the culture was at that time, they fall. They get wiped out. It's a good reminder that our hope can't be in any human enterprise We are not a political church. We don't pass out campaign flyers. We don't tell you how to vote. But I can't help but think of the application of this to us as Americans. For here we do not have a lasting city. At least the imagery should go through our minds not to cling so hard to America. And I love this country. I don't want to live anywhere else. I'm thankful that we live here. And I pray that throughout my life we'll still have the freedoms that right now are enshrined in our Constitution. But I think some Christians have missed the boat, and I've been guilty of it when they put all their hope in America. We just got to take it back. Well, it's not going to happen. Does that mean I'm a fatalist and I don't care? No, I care. And I would try and persuade people. America is still a blessing. There's no place I'd rather be, but America is not eternal. If we were to trace the history of our country and even the history of some of the people who are spreading right now strange and varied teachings, it's tied up with this idea that America is the new Jerusalem. America is the promised land. It's not. Has America been blessed by God? I really do believe it. I think part of the blessing comes from the fact that we've been a friend of Abraham's descendants. I was taught that by my grandma when I was a little kid. America is blessed by God in part because we're a friend of Israel. I believe that. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We should vote. We should be concerned. We shouldn't just passively accept everything, but by the same token, even if everything continues on its current path and it all goes to pot, our hope isn't here anyway. The rest of verse 14 we are seeking the city which is to come. We've got to remember this. We're seeking the city which is to come. Again, the writer talked about this in different contexts. But in Hebrews 11. Talking about some of the Old Testament saints. He says. But as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. In John 14. 2 and 3. I won't read it, but Jesus, I, I go to prepare a place for you. And if He prepared a place for us, he's going to bring us there. That's our hope. Our ultimate hope is in heaven. It's not here on the earth. We should be good citizens on the earth. We should be diligent. We should be salt and light. We should be preaching truth. We should be standing up for righteousness, even if everybody else in our society goes the other way. And if we do what will happen is we'll ultimately bear the reproach of Christ. You see it more and more and more. But bear the reproach of Christ for the right thing, not just because you're a cantankerous, angry person, but because you're humbly trying to follow the Lord and stand for truth regardless of what anybody else does. It's all about Jesus. Again, in God's providence, I come to this portion of text today when we're celebrating the Lord's table. Think about what Jesus did for us when he died. Again, the altar is not there. That's not the altar we have. But if you picture Jesus dying for our sins, as you remember that today, it should make you thankful. It should make you humbled. It should make you feel unworthy. And yet we remember, because our Savior did everything that we might be as children. Join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth. Lord, we don't want to be distracted by varied and strange teachings. We don't want to embrace error. We want to proclaim truth. But Lord, the proclamation without living it out would make us hypocrites, and we don't want to be that. Lord, we want to apply truth that we hear And have it impact our lives. Pray that you would help us do that. Pray that we would be examples for you. Lord, I pray for our country. Even this morning, I find my own heart getting aggravated again because of elections not going the way I want them to go. Lord, forgive me for the fact that I place so much faith in those elections. Help me to have the proper perspective, recognizing that you will work your sovereign will. Lord, help us not to be fatalists, but help us, Lord, to accept that this earth is not our home. That ultimately, our hope is in heaven with you. Lord, we pray that you would come quickly. Be wonderful if you returned today and took your church home. But as long as you leave us here, Lord, help us to remember the cross. Help us to remember it as our altar. And Lord, as we prepare for communion today, I pray that you would help us examine our hearts. Help us to confess any sins so that we wouldn't approach the table in an unworthy manner. We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.